Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Elevating Voices speaker series. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Asia Ghazi. I'm Dr. Gabby Miramontes, and I will be sharing with you today as well. My name is Dr. Maria Brahman, and it's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm Dr. Sonia S. from GSEP. And we also have with us Charlotta Green, a student in GSEP. And Aida Jafari, I am a student in the organizational leadership at GSEP. Perfect. We are all your hosts today, and we are going to be bringing you an amazing episode. We will be talking about what, what will we what will we be talking about, Dr. Gabby? <laughs> so thank you all for being here. We will be talking about imposterism today and the different ways that imposterism shows up in your life. Um, oftentimes we hear, you know, especially as it pertains to women, the idea of, of women's imposterism. But as um, Dr. Asia brought up earlier, there's other forms of imposterism. There's different ways of looking at imposterism. Um, so we'll be talking about a variety of ways that imposterism can show up in your life. And also what we can do to start overcoming those. So let's begin. Um, well, so Dr. Gabby, you know, you just mentioned that there are several different types, or we were talking about that just before the coming on to the podcast today. Um, and one of the types that I know I discussed was there's educational imposterism, because I, I just did a talk yesterday, a half hour uh, talk um, for transfer students who are going from a two-year college to a four-year university. And it was really interesting because the idea of educational imposterism actually didn't pop into my brain until yesterday when I was talking about my story and, and what I went through in trying to ach just achieve my bachelor's degree and then moving from my bachelor's degree to, to finally being able to get my master's and my doctorate. And so um, I'd, I'd love to know, um, have any of you had any stories on the different types of maybe imposterisms that you might have encountered? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, Dr. Asia, because quite frankly, going through my program, I still remember getting into the, I was fine in undergrad. Um, I was still fine in, master, in my master's program. But when I got into the doctoral program, I remember thinking I don't belong here. Like, I, how did I get here? You know, it's probably, um, I, I just felt like I didn't belong. I worked at GSEP. So in my head, it was like, oh, they just let me into the program because I work here and people know me. And, you know, yeah. um, it took a while for me to actually own the fact that I belonged in the doctoral program. And as a result, it's one of those things at some point, especially with first year students, um, you know, I get, kind of get the lay of the land. I get the feel for the room. But usually at some point in one of my classes, I do bring up the conversation about belonging because a lot of my students, especially the, and this doesn't negate what men go through, but our, our female students, the women in my class, a lot of times you can see that they're not saying it, but you know, a lot of responses come with the question at the end. Um, and so I always find myself having to have the conversation with all the students, but primarily with the women in the room about the fact that they belong there, that they've made it that far, they got to where they are and they belong there. And part of the reason why I do it is because I wish someone would have said that to me. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and, and I don't wanna take up the whole entire conversation here. 
because <laughs> it can happen. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned that because um, for me, my educational imposterism was when I was in community college. Um, I started out in community college. I was actually a computer science major. And, and I wanted to do computer science. And I had a professor who actually told me I wasn't good enough. And I, I'm, I'm serious. She literally said to me one day after class, she took me aside and she said, you know, you should probably consider majoring in something like library science, basically making fun of librarians. And I know Dr. Brahme, you're going to have something to say about that. Um, and telling me that that would be easier for you to do than computer science, because you, you're, you're not good enough for this. You don't understand the material and you're not getting it. Of course I'm not. If you're not teaching me, how am I supposed to understand that, you know, if all you're going to do is criticize your students. And so from that moment on, I, I, I felt like I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then somehow I landed into business and transferred to Cal State Northridge. And I failed. Okay. Didn't fail, fail. But I was on, I was, after my first semester of transferring there, I was put on academic probation my GPA was like a 1.5. So I clearly didn't feel like I belonged. And I felt as if, you know, I'm feeling because I don't understand statistics and math. That was one of my weaknesses. But rather than somebody saying, hey, let me help you with these weaknesses or here are these resources, I wasn't getting anything. So it, I think that's also a part of this educational imposterism that you're not, when you don't have that support system, how are you going to move forward in your life, right? So then, um, the following semester, I tried to improve my grades. I couldn't. So after that next semester, I was kicked out of Cal State Northridge. They basically said, you're going to have to reapply again. You got to go to community college or take extension courses and raise your grades and come back. And, I, and then I'm going to talk about resilience really quick, because what I did was this. I didn't give up. I could have just get, given, I could have just gave up and said, okay, I'm just going to sit home. I'm just going to work at Walmart or Target part-time and make some money and just that's it. No more school. I said, no, I'm going to figure this out. So I went back. I took classes through the Cal State Extension. I had to fight my way to get into those classes because you can't just, you know, go on the computer and pick your, your classes like you, like you could as a regular student. I had to wait for classes to start, walk in there, hope that people on the waiting, people would drop out and I would get into the class. And then I took some courses back at Pierce College and raised my grades enough in that one semester I reapplied and I got back in and I finished my bachelor's degree but that was I think a pivotal moment for me and then I had another event of educational imposterism when I tried to get into a master's program and because I graduated with a 2.56 GPA I could not I like I kept wanting to get into these master programs I wanted to do a master's in psychology or something in science. And every time I wanted to do it, oh, you have to take the GRE or the GMAT. And I just thought, well, I don't want to waste three or $400. And then I don't pass this exam because I already, in my head, I had already thought I'm going to fail the GMAT and the GRE anyway, because they're going to want me to do math and I can't do math. So I literally, um, it took me about seven or eight years. I went into law school, decided that it wasn't for me a year and a half later, um, took a break, tried to figure something out. And then finally, after about seven years, I finally said, okay, I have to do something. Got into, my, into a master's program at DeVry where I didn't need to worry about the GRE or the GMAT. And then that's when I think I found my belonging. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to speak now because <laughs> I was referred to, but before I get to the, um, the librarian issue, 
I want to speak specifically to the educational imposterism, which is really interesting. And I had a very personal experience when I, I did my um, BA and my MA, my MA in library science at UCLA, both my degrees, first degrees from UCLA. And, and then I um, have been a librarian at Pepperdine um, since uh, way back in the sands of time, 1993. And um, when, and I, I um, come from a family very, you know, I'm very privileged in that my family, my dad, uh, was an MD, PhD, and my grandfather was an MD, my brother is an MD. And um, when I um, decided to apply to the um, EDD um, learning technologies program at Pepperdine, just felt like a natural fit because it worked so nicely with um, with the work that I was doing as a librarian. And, um, but you know, imposterism can come from anywhere and hit you, it can blindside you. So thinking, um, you know, what your family's got behind you sometimes can slap you at the side of the head. So when I was um, telling my parents who I miss very, I lost them recently and I miss them every single day, no matter how challenging they could be. Oh my gosh, I miss them every day. But my dad said, well, I just don't know if you can hack it. <laughs> and so, which made me, I'm going to hack this. But throughout, I had this feeling, you know, I mean, talk about family imposed imposterism. So it was surprising, interesting, and um, also a gender issue because in my family, um, there had been no woman with a doctorate. So, um, and my mother had, didn't have advanced degrees, um, a brilliant, brilliant woman um, who beat my dad at Trivial Pursuit, like hands down constantly and every other intellectual game so funny, and he couldn't stand that. Um, but those are more personal issues. But then there's the interesting, um, you know, living the cliche of the librarian, right? So, which um, Dr. Gossi mentioned, you know, right? Being told, well, you should just go be a librarian. So, and that is a constant in um, in my life, and and in any um, professional librarian's life, it's just you know, and you make fun of it, or you live with it, or you do all of those, and like that. So, when I was invited to be um, an adjunct professor at um, GSEP, um, that is something that continues to live sort of in the back of my mind while well, I'm just, you know, I'm a librarian and the butt of many, many jokes. So, um, and something to work on and something that really does help me understand um, the challenges that come with, you know, professional cliches, educational cliches and um, imposterism. Um, and these things, um, being aware of how this can affect you can be really helpful in how it humanizes you and helps you understand challenges for individual students in different professions and different programs and coming from different backgrounds. So, um, and also, uh, again, that humility that it affords you, I think can be very 
uh, helpful, but understanding the, um, the science behind it and how profoundly it can affect students and professionals um, is, is, is both helpful, illuminating, um, and self-revealing, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're, you're so right about that. I, I don't know, I'm just curious, when you heard what this professor was telling me, about majoring in library science, I mean, because that's why I looked at you. <laughs> I said, uh, Dr. Brahme is going to have something to say about that. Well, you know, it's interesting um, that you say that because um, so I found library school at, and library school is now, and again, part of the cliche of library school has uh, um, prompted um, the change of the names of these programs because library has is just uh, connotates um, um, the kind of profession that a woman slips into. Um, it's underpaid to, I mean, sort of compared to other professions, it's sort of like the only option for a woman historically going back. And so um, it doesn't carry a whole lot of academic respect in some in some ways and you know sort of in popular um, in a popular context. And you know it's a it's <laughs> again, librarians are the butt of many jokes. And so um, you know, um, in in so many ways. So yeah, it's that's so familiar to me. And um, of course, a challenge, um, I think, to every professional librarian. Um, and um, like I said, library schools have responded by, and I continue stubbornly to call my graduate, my master's education library school and a library science degree, whereas now mostly they're called information studies um, right. and MLIS degrees um, rather than master's of library science, master of library and information science, information studies. So it's really interesting um, um, how the profession has responded to try to beef up um, the, um, the image um, and um, for the most part, um, the, the titles of the jobs have changed quite a lot as well as a result. So you see the title librarian less and less, um, and you see information professional and, and, and similar, similar types of titles. So um, it continues to be a stigma at this point in my you know, career, I um, got my library degree in 1990. Um, and so it's been a quite a long time. And um, certainly I, um, my colleagues and I have, have dealt with this and it's sort of more amusing to me at this point. Um, but um, for me, and to answer your question very directly, uh, the master's program at UCLA was really hard. and. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think in some ways it was, in some um, areas, it was made more challenging because of the image of the librarian and the easy job and sort of like the lack of intellectualism, this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a really good question and really interesting. It's, it's fascinating to me, the whole thing. Absolutely. 
Well, and it's interesting because last week we were just talking about this, that, you know, Charlotte and I were talking about how um, I used to dream of becoming a librarian. Like that was my dream job. I used to be like, I love books, right? I mean, hence the background. Um, but I, I used to, I used to, I'm not kidding you. I used to dream like that was my dream job for a really long time, but it, it speaks to, and, and this ties into imposterism. It speaks to not having the pathway. Like I didn't know what it entailed to become a librarian. I didn't know what that even meant. Like, but then again, I didn't know what most jobs entailed. I just knew that I had to go to school and I had to find a career and I had to find a job. But in hindsight, I think I would have been very happy as a librarian or I, or I would have caused a lot of damage. I haven't quite decided on that one yet. But I, I mean, if you think about it, you know, and I get it. You don't sit around the whole day reading books. That's not what librarians do. I mean, it's more involved than that. But just being surrounded by so much knowledge and being able to help people and, you know, that story, that narrative of just being surrounded by some of the greatest authors and like that too and I know that sounds really romantic and Dr. Rama you're probably sitting there thinking yeah that's like one percent of one percent of everything I do but I don't know and and when we were talking about books last week that that is something that came up when you think about what do you want to be when you would grow up you know a lot of times we see teachers because that's our first interaction with the professional world but for me it was like no I want to be a librarian like I don't want to teach I want to be a librarian, um, which is funny because I ended up teaching and not becoming a librarian, but that's a whole other trajectory, right? Yeah. No, and, and you know, and it, it's it's so beautiful, and there are some such silly things that I think are kind of entrenched in every profession. So, you know, librarians tend to get asked, "Oh, oh, you must get to read all day," and. Truly, that's a stigma in librarianship. You do not read on the job because that's like, it's such a stigma. You cannot sit and read. <laughs> and it's, it's just, I mean, some of these things are frankly hilarious to me, but, but, um, but truly, you know, the responsibilities are, are about, are so cool and so really rewarding in terms of, you know, information literacy and stewarding um, populations, various populations toward intellectual awareness and awareness of literacy and literature and, um, and tailoring literacy awareness to each individual, um, let's say patron or wherever you happen to be doing this kind of work. And then, you know, then there's the other piece I always call, I'm a public services librarian. So I work with the public and teach and, um, and um, interact with um, students who have questions about research and so forth. So that's super fun for me. The background, in the background, there are the cataloging librarians who organize all of this information, who catalog all and design our databases and, and orchestrate our subscription to all of the databases. So to make sure that we have the complement of um, literature available to our students that supports the curriculum. And, um, and it's, it's, it's just so satisfying, but I call the catalogers, they're the smart ones because 
they put all the stuff together. We're just out there public facing and showing our stuff off to our patrons, to our faculty, and, and, and really try to communicate and, and get feedback. What do you need to support what you're teaching? What do your student, students need to know to um, carry out uh, their assignments, to understand their assignments, to understand the architecture, architecture of information which changes um, constantly. Um, it's a moving target and we have to understand where um, like the predator, there's predators. It's, you know, it's, a, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's an exciting area. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, there are, um, there are um, individuals and institutions and forces that try to corrupt this and to, to direct um, understanding and intelligence in, in ways that are nefarious and so forth. And so there's, there's a lot of kind of underground work to be done, but that's the catalysters. That's not me. <laughs> well, good to know that that could be another podcast session down the line, right? Right, right. Boy, I really derailed this. Forgive me. No, no, I have fine. a question around what you just kind of shared. I wonder how much of imposterism, how imposter syndrome yeah. um, comes from the lack of knowledge about particular fields and what really goes into them and having these preconceived notions about who should be in those places and who should not. I mean, just thinking about the term, um, moving from library into, you know, information um, professional, professional, um, the same thing with people who work in, um, you know, sanitation and garbage collection, they're now sanitary engineers. And, and so I wonder how much of it is um, the way in which we've been shaped and formed based on you know, who should be here, what the job entails, and really not knowing that. And then making those things, uh, making it really difficult um, for us to step into these roles and feel like we can own them for, for lack of a better reason. I mean, as a clergy person, most people don't look at me and say clergy, right? <laughs> like, um, they're always surprised because it's generally been a male position and it's, you know, been a particular demographic of males and so when I show up to the table it's always this question and I think my personal experience is I second-guessed everything that I was doing and kept asking am I really supposed to be here not because I didn't have the skills but because of the way I was being received and I wonder how much that plays a role in that space of imposterism. Well, that's a, a really great question, Charlotta, about that, um, you know, certain roles and just the fact that they're changing, right? The names are changing. We're trying to make it so that it's more appealing. Um, I think it's an interesting question to ask of how much of that has to do with maybe, you know, an imposterism issue or, you know, is it that? And it could be, um, it, it could be, like, it could be that, well, you know, we're trying to attract more people into this position you know, we're not seeing maybe enough people wanting to enter the field of, you know, becoming a librarian, for example, or library science. We're not seeing enough people maybe entering, um, you know, specific fields where you're going to learn how to take the garbage out. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. But I mean, because these are all, um, you know, 
different types of industries with different information. I think, I think um, just changing it is just to make it easier. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to think how it could really fit with um, the imposterism issue of it. But I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, looking at these fields and going, is this a field I really want to be in? You know, do I really want to be called, you know, a sanitation, uh, you know, person, maybe a sanitation expert, you know, might sound better to somebody than, oh, I'm, you know, I, I tape the garbage out for people's houses or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Does it have to do with the value gap though? I mean, so, Maybe. so as I listened to you tell your story, mm-hmm. there was a lack of value of who you are as a human being and what yeah. you brought to the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that is part of the challenge when we feel like we've shown up in places and we're not prepared to, yeah. um, if, if we're valued, even if we don't succeed, like we expected to, we're willing to get up and start all over again, no matter how difficult it is, without having to do the pep talk in the ways in which sometimes it takes us seven, 15, 20 years to get back on track because who we are Mm -hmm. and how we've shown up and what we're seeking to do is not valued for just Mm -hmm. who we are as human beings in our own right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that those things we have to hold intention, right? Because each time you say, I, I feel like I'm an imposter, the question is, where did that come from? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like who planted right. that seed? Right. So is it, is it my, my background? You know, as you've talked about family, is mm-hmm. it a combination of background, culture, expectation? Um, is it the world around us that values particular things more so than others? You know, to be a medical doctor is, you know, a big thing to be a PhD or an EDD you know, there are some question marks, right? Because it, it's kind of like, yeah, we know about MDs, they make a lot of money, but they don't know about the PhDs and the EDDs that also make the world go round. Right. Um, we, I, I think part of it is a value question. I think value and belonging. Yes. So, which Dr. Brahme, you had brought it, brought it up in a, in a conversation we were having earlier today about belonging. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, and just um, how how sticky these labels are that, and you know how we identify ourselves, and um, and what, and I think again that value judgment and the values we place on that, and what. Um, I th- yeah, belonging and fitting in and um, um, what am I thinking of? What's the word? It's um, permission, permission to participate, permission to, to um, contribute um, and the kinds of contributions. You know, I keep coming back to, I think it was, um, Pastor Abernathy, you know, decades ago, who pointed out that Dr. Martin Luther King marched with garbage workers, and that's what they were called then, right? I mean, I just really underscoring the value of the human um, 
and the what we all deserve um and how that hope the picture of his work um just sort of stands in contrast to what we think about ourselves um and what we um allow how we allow ourselves where we allow ourselves to fit in society and that that really matters so much it matters more than what we often give voice to yeah every human being whether they say it or not yeah wants to feel like they matter yes and, and like they've contributed something um it's yeah. bad enough that sometimes we're questioning right Questioning. Yeah. Am I smart enough to do this? Is is my opinion important? Is what I bring to the table important? I mean, these are all questions that I think we normally ask anyways. Yeah. Because you want to offer something of value and you add the extra added other things where there is a lack of value of your humanity or what you bring to the table. I think that that spirals us into a different space. I know I stopped asking my students. Um, what they want to be when they grow up. And I started asking, what kind of experiences do you want? Yeah, to have? I love that. I and love that. It shifts the whole atmosphere from doing to being. And to I be, think that yeah. that's the difference when we talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. We're caught in the space of doing and showing up doing and not necessarily the opportunity to be. I'm seeing her writing notes <laughs> because there's so, like, there's so many goodies, so many golden nuggets. I'm sure like all of our listeners like right now must be going, wow. Okay. This is interesting, interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think also maybe to the, to the answer to your previous questions were exactly belonging, the value, how do we fit in society, how society looks at us. And you're asking like, where does this start with? And I think it really just, it stems from our environment, our childhood, what we were taught as parents, uh, from our parents, what, you know, our, you know, our grandparents taught us maybe there's, there's so much. And then like what we're seeing in social media, what we're seeing every day in mass media, you know, all of these things that we're exposed to can really change what we're thinking, how we're thinking and the experiences. And so I think that's why these changes are coming about with how we're going to call ourselves in the industry. Like, library, you know, instead of a librarian, it's an information, you know, services, you know, uh, person or something like that. And it's just because of what we're being bombarded at with every single day, which is probably why we're being told not to watch too much TV and not to take in too much social media, right? Um, I'd love to get some input from um, Dr. Sonia, from Ida, um, you know, what your thoughts are on, on our conversations today. And women in the academy, I think that's a really yeah. interesting thing because we were never supposed to be here. Well, that's what that's what they that's what they think, but we were always supposed to be there. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and and to that point though, I mean, you know, who, whoever this they is, mm. um, it, it's it's not just that we weren't supposed to be here, but also the this idea of what we bring to the table, right? So part of the reason that we see uh, title shifting and as we see um, positioning shifting, um, it goes back to the conversations, like having a voice, having, having a say, being part of the decision-making process, but also finding value, right? If you think about 
if you think about um, our first responders or our, our um, um, oh, what's the other word? Um, our, our healthcare workers? No, essential, them too, but essential our, workers yes, thank you, yeah. our essential workers. Okay. When we think about essential workers, what yeah. makes them essential is if they stop, we mm -hmm. stop. Like right. when we think about, when we think about, yeah. um, yeah. you know, to stay on, on theme, the garbage collection, you know, they're so devalued, mm -hmm. but yet without them, yeah, like we would fall apart. Mm -hmm. Think about, you know, um, the workers that are working in our ports right now. Oh yeah. You no, know, longshoremen. Um yeah. all the the port authority yeah. mm -hmm. that that they tend to be devalued because it's manual labor and you know you don't mm -hmm. need academic degrees and and blah 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 whatever whatever that is. Um but but look at what we're facing right now with the delays in shipping, the delays in workforce, you know, the mm -hmm. stoppage of working and it isn't because they chose not to work it's things that are outside of their control and we're yeah. at a standstill mm -hmm. you know yeah. that that immediate gratification society that we're a part of that gets you know amazon gets things here in two days um <laughs> yeah. not always anymore you know it really depends on where things are coming from and how how that that um how the distribution chain is working and all of those components so I think that a lot of times we internalize mm -hmm. we internalize the the undervalue mm -hmm. we internalize our contribution we've heard so much whether directly or indirectly that we're not enough um mm -hmm. or that mm -hmm. we're only here because of x y and z I grew up when affirmative action was still in place so I heard a lot of that language in the background, like you're only here because you're meeting a quota or you're only here because you're a number or, and all of that, you know, it carries psychological weight, um, especially in academia. The fact that we're all here in academia is telling. Um, but, but at the same time, I, I, we can't lose sight of the fact that we are here. And, you know, um, focusing a little bit on, on how to overcome it. And part of it, Part of it is finding a community that actually helps you feel like you belong, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. um, I was recently asked why, because this is the second time I'm at Pepperdine, why I came back. And the reality is because I belong. Not always, not all the time, and not in all environments. But I found my voice here, right? I might have felt like there were times where I was an imposter, mm -hmm. and I still feel that way sometimes. Um, but the reality is I've worked really hard to get here um, and I belong here, um, whether anybody else believes it or not. So that's yeah. getting there, I think, is the challenge. And yeah. I know, Asya, that you have a few um, a few recommendations on how we can get there faster and yeah. not having to, um, you know, deal with a lot of the challenges that we've all faced getting there. Um, but through your own study and through your own research, you found ways for us to get there faster. So why don't you share some of those with us? Can I just take in just a quick comment prior <laughs> and forgive me because just knowing this amazing group of women in academia, I know from experience and, and knowing experience of seeing you all do your work 
that your motivation is the work of getting our students, educating our students. So in con so there's this conflict between that we're always dealing with our own self-image, but also the work that we are committed to doing, to educating our students. And um, yeah, so. Yeah. Asia, Dr. Asia, please take it away. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, a couple of things that I found in my research that I know helped a lot of uh, the women that I had done, re you know, research on, um, it was women in engineering, but those, those, um, it was really interesting because when I spoke to them and talked to them about what their experiences were and what they did, um, you know, almost everybody had said mentorship and, you know, if you, you want to start working on getting over any form of imposterism you're going through, um, which again, this is something also that's, you know, coming up, which is a very good thing because now I can, we can dissect it even further because it's so much more than just feeling like you're a fraud or feeling like you're not good enough, or I was just here and it was just a lucky time for me. I mean, it's more than that. It's really your value, your sense of belonging and your support systems. So who do you have around you? And I think it's your support systems that are like the most the most important aspect of helping you to overcome these hurdles of imposterism. And the first one is, you know, to create a support system by getting some mentors and coaches. And um, I don't know if, and I mean, you all have mentors and you all have coaches, you know, here um, in, in one way, shape or form. And it, and if you don't, I would definitely encourage for all, everyone listening, I would encourage you all to get a mentor or a coach because as part of your support system, you've got someone to fall back on who has had more experiences than you and can show you and guide you along the way, right? Um, I mean, if you look at the different organizations, they have not every organization, but some organizations have mentorship programs and some are starting mentorship programs. And, um, and it's all a matter of just, you know, finding those people who are willing to guide you or a coach who you can, you know, who's going to ask you high level questions to get you to really think about solutions um, to your issues or problems that you might be having. If it's a sense of, I don't feel like I belong. Well, why, why don't, let's find out, let's get deeper into it. Why can't, why do you feel like you don't belong? Um, you know, and, and maybe that person's going to get into their past and say, well, you know, I came from this environment where maybe I was abused, or I came from an environment where, you know, um, you know, I belong to this specific community, but I don't believe, belong to another one. And you just get deeper into it with somebody who doesn't know you, who, you know, doesn't have that, you know, information about you, but can literally sit with you and, and, and work you through that. Um, and also, you really do need to look at your circle of influence, because I believe your environment is a huge, huge deal. If you have people around you, family, friends, whoever, and those people in your life are not supporting you, they're not taking care of you, they're not, you know, telling you, you got this. And instead, they're maybe, you know, um, you know, they're not supporting you, they might not be, you know, they, they, they don't show that they're happy when you're showing that you, you know, you're doing something great, or, you know, there, there's this, there's a constant sense of abuse, you need to step away from that and look for those people that you are, you know, that you know, are going to cheer you on, you know, are going to have your back, even professors, even, um, you know, uh, other other people within the universities that we attend and, and, you know, outside of that, we really need, do need to look at that. 
So all of you are my circle of influence. And I'm proud to say that because I can look at all of you and learn something from each and every one of you. And I'm, I'm always doing that. So sorry if there's some banging noises. My neighbors upstairs are banging. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> to add to that, I'd like to say that it's important when we see and overhear people devaluing other folks. Um, it is our responsibility to stand up and to say something um, that counters the negative responses um, so that we showed up to other people um, that this industry, that this person, that this space is valued and important. Um, because the more we step back and not say anything, the more it gets to kind of devalue a group of people or particular industry or particular work. I think part of it too is making sure that um, we're okay with taking responsibility to, to being vocal about those things. Um, and the other thing is asking the question, what's the record that keeps playing in your head? And why have we focused in on the negative things and not the positive things? I think because we often are fighting to prove or disprove the negative things, as opposed to listening to the positive things and holding on to that. So I think those are two other things I would add to what you just shared. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'm glad we brought up the whole conversation around mentorship and sponsorship. Um, just because it's so vital that we have people in our corner that are cheering us on, right? Because we're our own biggest critics. I mean, honestly, we're the ones that are most critical of our successes. We're the ones that are most critical of our mistakes. Um, and we tend to focus rather heavily on our mistakes, right? When we mess up or when we do something wrong or, you know, stumble in any way, we tend to be the ones that and top of anybody else on the outside pointing fingers, we tend to kind of reflect back on our inadequacies and that whether, whether real or imagined. And I think that has a lot to do with that little inner voice, right? That inner voice that's constantly churning and telling you that you're not good enough. Um, or maybe not telling you that you're not good enough, but perhaps telling you that, you know, you could do better. Like there's always better. And it's interesting because I just had this conversation with my students. And one of the things that came up is that that idea of perfectionism, how always striving to not make mistakes or when was the last time you made a mistake or, you know, that could lead to this notion of perfectionism. And the reality is as human beings, we're not perfect. We weren't built to be perfect. And so when we put that level of stress on us, that level of pressure about perfection or not making mistakes or not stumbling, um, I think we're causing ourselves a lot of harm. I think that, you know, a lot of times we're so afraid of making mistakes or we work for people who heaven forbid you make a mistake, you know, and they react or overreact. And it creates this tension because you learn from friction. You learn from those things that, that, that make you think, that make you reflect. And when you can't learn because you have to be perfect and you can't make mistakes, that's detrimental. You get stuck. You, you never aspire to go beyond where you're at for fear of making mistakes, for fear of looking bad, for fear of, you know, worrying. The reality is, I mean, in my case, if I, if I didn't have people around me that actually took the chance that, you know, I wouldn't have the, the background I have. I mean, I have, I do different things and I do different things because at some point, somebody said, huh, 
not in your it's not in your wheelhouse it's not in your lane but eh, what can go wrong right that can't be fixed short of being a first responder short of being you know in the medical field where people can actually die or the military where people can die what's the worst thing you can have that can happen you lose money you have to start all over again you lose time you know someone gets mad at you and so so when you think about who we are and 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 the pressures we put on ourselves sometimes those can be really damaging so i agree with everything that was shared today about how to overcome imposterism but first and foremost you have to be forgiving of yourself and you have to be forgiving of the fact that you're fallible and that you're human and that you're still worthy and that you still carry that spark of the divine in you because i think that once we realize this and we look in a mirror and we love who we see i think that can transform us absolutely i cannot agree more with you i cannot agree more so i know that we are coming close to the end of our um, show today um but before we go um, what are um, any tips or uh, one, one you know, call to action that we can give to everybody today? I think for me, my call to action is that, um, you know, get that support system going and find people in your life who truly are going to make sure that they have your back. I have a quick note. Oh my gosh. And I love Dr. Amir Montez, Finding the Divine, that is so beautiful. I just, I'm going to sit with that for a while. So thank you for that. Um, but I've been um, involved in some really interesting coaching practices recently. And one of the, one of the issues that, you know, all, you know, having people not like you is, is that's so challenging, right? For me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But one little tip that I learned recently is that I love this idea of let them be wrong about you. I love that. Let them be wrong about you. That's okay. Yeah, I love that too. <laughs> I would like to add something to Dr. Gabby's point. First of all, thank you all. It was a great discussion. Um, I think Personally, from my own experience, my imposterism comes from the idea of uh, being a perfectionist. I remember the first time I heard the word, I mean, with this concept of imposterism, I talked to Dr. Asia when he had this episode with Dr. Majidi. Um, and then I was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that what I was dealing with had a, had a name and had is a real syndrome. So, um, I know we are out of time now, but um, for me, my dad was a university professor before he retired a few years ago back in Iran. And I remember since I was five, four, as long as I remember, he would tell us you have to be perfect. He was a big supporter of education and higher education and being successful means highly educated and all that, those stuff. And I was always, uh, um, straight A student and successful and active and everything. But the thing is, sometimes I think they raised me in a way that I could not bear it, not being perfect. So um, when I entered um, this doctoral program, although I had been in a school for my master's in, uh, in America, but still 
I entered the program and I was dealing with a, an amazing cohort. So it was then that I realized I was not articulate enough. As soon as I realized that, uh, you can imagine how it, you know, I pulled myself back and lost my confidence and I was stressed out when I had like presentations. And for the first year, it was really challenging for me. It was really challenging because I was, I knew that I wasn't perfect. I was okay, but I wasn't perfect. And I could not deal with, with that. And I was suffering like, then I realized that, okay, I need to have, I started from here that, um, you know, to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, technical conversations with people, to have to talk, to make myself talk so that I can just, uh, you know, wash off that fear because I totally lost my confidence. Like I couldn't, I couldn't talk in front of my classmates. And I was like, what, what happened to you? You know, um, so I think at that I have gone a long way. I, I am feeling much, much better, but it's still my heart beats <laughs> when I have presentations. You know, it's the last term, but still. Um, so yeah, I think mine is not coming from not having supporters or people who encourage me. My parents did it too much. They would always say, you are perfect. You are amazing. We never had a problem with you. We never pushed you to study. Oh, you are the best one. You are the top student, top student. And that, I think, made me too confident. Then I, when I realized that, oh, you see, there are much better people in front of me, then I lost all of it. So, yeah, the, the truth hit me hard. Yeah, and that's actually what you just mentioned is definitely something that, um, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Arams, when they did their research, had found that, that as one of the symptoms of imposterism is when you're being expected to be perfect by your family members. So there's that expectation. And then when that person grows up and they're seeing that, you know, maybe it's not really that they're, they, that they have to perform 100% all the time and they can't, that that leads to that because there's burnout and there's all of these other things. I'm so glad that you, you said that and that you told us about your experience. I was waiting for you to talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I'm so sorry. I have to apologize because this time is a little bit, you know, I, I had to be at work. Sometimes I can get away earlier because we have meetings uh, on Fridays, but today I couldn't. That's no. why I was in both sides, you know. I'm so sorry. It's all good. I think one of the things I had to learn was to walk in excellence, not in perfectionism. I still am learning that, but it's you know, fully authentically showing up and offering. Um, and it is an offering. It's not a job. It's not any of those things. To fully show up as yourself and excellence is an offering of all of who you are in the space that you're in to the world. Um, you are, an, I mean, an amazing divine gift. And, and what you offer <laughs> then becomes this other gift that you give. And so I think that's one of the things um, that when I'm seeking to be too hard on myself because I have this ridiculous high expectation is am I offering excellence and my best and my showing up authentically? Um, because in doing so, then as Dr. Gabby said, you know, even if it doesn't go as planned or even if it totally falls apart, um, it's not because you haven't offered something in excellence. And I guess, to, to round all of this out, um, 
the other piece I think that's really critical as far as imposterism goes is this comparison to others, right? So um, it's funny, I heard on TV, um, watching NCIS, as I've mentioned multiple times before, one of my favorite shows, not plugging it, just saying, um, there was this one scene and they're talking about social media and how everyone posts their A sides, right? Nobody posts their B sides. No one talks about, um, and, and I'm not trying to rip off the show. It was just a really good point. Um, nobody talks about the bad day they're having or how horrible their life is going or, you know, um, I remember a few years back, I was in a really difficult place. And instead of posting about the difficult times, I just shut down and I stopped posting on social media altogether, right? And it's like, we tend to compare ourselves to the very best that others bring to the table, especially in a doctoral program. Obviously, you're in a group with a bunch of overachievers because we're all overachievers that go on to be, get doctorates, right? I mean, it's kind of self-selection if you were thinking about methodology. Um and so you're driven and you're, you're pushed to accomplish. So when you compare yourselves to those people in the room, of course, and you have the little voice in the back of your head saying, you're not good enough, you don't belong, or, you know, um, you're not enough. It's really easy to lose, lose sight of that. So my recommendation for everybody is here on this call and, and everybody listening to us is, um, don't fall for the idea that somebody else's life is utterly perfect. Now, there's always going to be people that are, that are smarter, that are richer, that are happier, that are more intelligent. Like, that's just the nature of life. But if we constantly compare ourselves and, and see ourselves from a perspective of scarcity, um, we're always going to fall short. So, so really you know, life is a blessing. Every interaction is a blessing. And like Charletta once said to me, you know, we're all in a, we're all in a specific season of our lives. And, and in that season, you kind of, you take what you have and you seek out the best and you move from there. If we're so focused on the negative, we're never going to get ahead. Um, and so, yeah, that's my takeaway. And that's my offering all in one. Spring, great to hear these things from you guys, ladies. Well, I am so glad uh, we had, we all had such a great conversation today. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for, you know, just having this discussion and talking about your experiences and, you know, what you've all gone through and, and just even your thoughts. Thank you for coordinating. Thank you all. Thank yes, you. thank you. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. For those of you listening to uh, the show, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and we'd love to know your thoughts, of course. But what we will be doing is we will come back again next week with another episode on another topic. And until then, wishing all of you the best, having a wonderful day, wonderful week, a wonderful day, evening or night, wherever you are listening to the Elevating Voices speaker series podcast. Thank you. Have a good weekend, everyone. Yeah, good weekend. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you all.